Our reading tonight is from Philippians 2. It's verses 1 through 11 in the NIV. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Emily. I don't know if the music was just like, I know the music is here is always really good, but tonight it was like, man, I thought that was, like the last song usually is like when we kind of have revival around here, and I felt like that was like the last song. Did you guys feel that? Maybe it was just because I was sitting so close. Um, but um, we got some high schoolers here tonight, some youth kids on the back row. Can we give it up for the youth? The pastor's kids are not here, but I'm glad you all are here. Um, and we even have uh, people visiting from college. It's amazing. We're so excited. Um, I love seeing you all. And Eli Brunt, we got a kid from the kids' ministry. Let's give it up for Eli. <laughs> Eli. Thank you, Eli, for setting up my segue. Um, Eli was a uh, rocket man on Saturday, right, Eli? Or Friday for Halloween? That's yes, right. And Eli won the out-of-this-world uh, costume on Friday night. I think Emily maybe came up with that award last minute. Uh, but it was super fun. On Friday night, we had a, a Halloween gathering with Memorial Presbyterian Church. That Memorial is the one who meets here in the morning. They're the ones who own this building, who rent it to us so graciously. And um, they had a bunch of their kids come out, and they did their, you know, the kids were in costumes, and then we had uh, a lot of our kids and families from Providencia, and they had this little aisle, and the kids went down with the parents, and they got awards, and it was super fun, and there was just a bunch of people. It was like the biggest gathering of people with masks on, uh, six feet apart, that I had been a part of since, what, like March maybe? Sometime in March. 
Um, and for those of you who know Enneagram or Enneagram 7, uh, for those of you who know introvert, extrovert, I'm more of an extrovert. Although, I do like my time alone. So let me just say that up front. I really do like my time alone. At the beginning of, of the COVID thing, I was kind of like resting in my time alone. I kind of liked being alone. And I can get burned out on being with people. Um, the number one thing that burned me out on being an extrovert in a way was uh, being a youth pastor for multiple years. Um, but I still love being with people. So Friday night, I was with a bunch of people, and then they came to our house because I was like the, the trick-or-treat guy there, and I gave away candy, and I met these families from our church and got to say hi to them, and then I got to meet families from Memorial, and some of them live in our neighborhood, and it was like the first time we ever met, and I was like, oh my gosh, we have more friends, and I was super excited. And then I started this text chain, and if you surf and you want to be a part of it, just let me know. And I'll put you on it, but there's like 10 people on the one that's established right now, but it's already grown to like 15 when I have to remake it. And so um, waves happening right now, waves happening this week, all week into next week. This is insanity. We have never had this much good surf in our life. I feel like we live in Hawaii or California or somewhere. So if you know people who surf and they just seem like really excited and happy, that's what's going on. Um, and if they're an extrovert or an Enneagram 7, it even makes more sense because I texted all these people on Saturday, let's go, there's waves, and all of us went surfing together. So like 10 people in the water, all of our friends out there, nobody else was out there really except for a few people, and we were nice to them too. And um, I'm known as kind of the hype guy in the water. I think it's been established. Uh, everybody has a nickname at this point. Um, and I'm like pumping people on their waves. And the waves are getting bigger. As I'm pumping people up, the waves are getting bigger. So they actually believe now that I'm also the hype man for the waves. Like the waves follow Keith. And so I'm getting everybody super pumped. And we surfed a total of four hours. It's the longest I've ever surfed. Uh, probably uh, I am still paying the price for that. But I was exhausted after that surf session. But four hours of surfing, we had a blast. In the middle of it, I had to go move my parking, my car. Because if you're like me, you know where the two-hour free parking spaces are on Palm Beach. And so I had to run, because I'm the hype guy and people were going to miss me in the water. I had to run from the beach to my car. And I ran as fast as I could. I get to the car. By the time I get to the car, I feel like I'm going to pass out. And one of the things that happens when you're surfing, you don't realize, is that you actually are sweating in the ocean. And, and you just don't realize it because you're wet all the time. And you get dehydrated. And about halfway through our surf, surf session, Drew Doc, who his nickname in the water is Doc. I'm just call him Doc now. And uh, he says, does anybody have water on the beach? And I was like, dang it, dude. Why'd you have to ask that question? Because nobody has water on the beach. And now all I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of the surf session is how thirsty I am. Because your lips start drying out. You get the salt water in there. So I run to the car after I've been thinking about how thirsty I am for about an hour. And I get down to the car. And I just want to move my car as fast as possible. So that I can do what? So I can get back to the water. But I'm like dying. And I just pull it across the road there on Brazilian, and there's a restaurant there, 
And there's no like convenient place to get water on the island really or Gatorade or whatever it is you need. And so there's a restaurant though right there and it actually looked like it was under construction but this waiter walks out of the back and he's working and he's like throwing away you know, garbage or something and I'm like, should I ask him if he can get me a free water? And it's like, I'm on Palm Beach, and, like, I'm playing. He's working. And uh, you're like, no, no, dude, I can't ask this guy. I can't ask the guy. And the guy goes back in, and I was like, okay, you missed your opportunity. So now I'm, like, starting to walk back, and the guy comes back out. And I was like, um, excuse me, sir? And he's like, yes. I was like, is there any way you could get me a water to go? And he's like, sure thing. The guy goes back inside, and he brings me out, not like a little small cup of water. Like most of the time when you go to restaurants and you ask for water, and it's like, you know, you get like your small little cup. And um, he brought me out like what the waitresses and waiters drink their drinks out of. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the extra large soup uh, container filled with ice and not styrofoam, plastic. And he's like... He's like, he brings it back out to me, huge smile on his face, and he's like, that water's good. <laughs> it's like, I bet it is. It's from this Palm Beach restaurant, right? And it, it, it sounds like kind of like this, this funny story, but I promise you, as I drank that water, I wanted to give that guy a $100 bill. I'm like, thank you so much, because I have no money. I'm trying to get back to the beach to be with my friends. I'm dying of thirst. And this guy gives me this huge cup of water. And I'm just drinking it, walking back down the sidewalk like, ah. It's like fueling my body and fueling my steps as I go back. And, you know, I wonder, I wonder if people would have had the same reaction if I had gone into the front door and maybe asked some of the people who were coming in the restaurant, you know, like some of the clientele, like, hey, could you get me a water? I wonder if they would have had the same reaction that this guy had this waiter who's coming out the back, that he was so willing to serve me even while I'm out like having fun and he's there working. I was really touched by it. I couldn't stop thinking about it. Uh, so much so that it's in my sermon today. Um, and I, and I want to go back to that restaurant because when I was in a time of need, this guy showed up for me. And he didn't show up for me in a way where he was like, you know, man, you know, I, I don't have time to get you water. I'm working. Um, he didn't show up for me in a way where he tried to make me feel bad for asking. He, like, did exactly the opposite. He was, like, smile on his face. Here you go. I'm going to give you more than you even asked for. And I want you to enjoy it. Do you think that guy has ever been thirsty before in his life? Do you think he's ever asked somebody for a drink when he was thirsty? I can pretty much guarantee it. Tonight we are talking about the advantage of grace. And there's three points for you tonight as we talk about the advantage of grace. It's the advantage of our vulnerability as we understand grace. The advantage of the other as we understand grace and the advantage 
of forever. Uh, Paul is writing uh, to the city of Philippi. He's writing to the church there, the community there. He has been the one who has been a catalyst for starting this new community. And this new community is, is based on a new narrative. They have bought into a new story called the gospel story, the gospel of grace. And Paul is writing to them when he is imprisoned. And the people in, in Philippi are going through some suffering, some hard times. We don't know all the details of what that is, but we know that they're, they're suffering. And we know that the empire is at large. And the empire has its narrative, and the church has bought into a new one. It's bought into this new narrative of grace. And Paul is writing to them from prison. He has been imprisoned for preaching this narrative. He's been in prison for telling this story. And he will soon face his death because of it. The empire has separated him from his community. And they will eventually um, even separate him from his own body. As, as history and tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded by the Roman Empire. The empire disembodies. But this gospel, this grace that Paul is telling us about is the journey of embodiment. It's this journey of embodiment. It's the advantage, number one, of vulnerability. Verses one and two. Listen to these words describing what it means to be connected to Christ, to be connected to his body. Encouragement. Comfort, intimate friendship, tenderness, and compassion. Have you tasted those things from Jesus? Have you tasted those things from his body? Have you been around Providencia in a way, maybe you're here and you, you don't necessarily believe everything that, that, that me or, or other people up here are talking about, or, or you're still trying to figure out who, who Jesus is and what this whole thing means. Have you tasted tenderness here? Have you tasted compassion here? Have you been encouraged here? Have you been invited into deeper relationship here? Have you tasted these things? Let's look at one of these words, encouragement. The word encouragement, when you go back to its root word, it's really a call for help. Like, like help me please. I need help right now. There's the vulnerability of asking for help. It implies, what Paul is writing this, he's inviting them to remember. Have you ever been encouraged before by being united with Christ? He's bringing them back to that vulnerability. It's not just the encouragement, but the invulnerability that they needed encouragement, that they had lost hope, that there was a need that they had that they didn't think the need was going to be fulfilled, that it wasn't going to come through. And this encouragement that Paul is talking about, he's connecting us back to our vulnerability, to the exposed places where someone showed up. For me, it was the water yesterday. Maybe for you, it's the friend who keeps asking, how are you doing? No, no, how are you really doing? No, how are you really, really doing? The cell phone's off. They really, 
truly want to know. Maybe it's when you expected someone to bring wrath. Instead, they brought something more scary. They brought tenderness. They brought kindness. And Paul is saying, friends, church, remember, remember the time of your vulnerability. You were vulnerable and Jesus showed up. You were vulnerable and the church showed up. You were vulnerable and a friend showed up. A stranger showed up for me. Grace showed up. And it shows up in the most unexpected moments. And Paul is not just saying this to us individually. He's saying it to a church in a city collectively. And he's telling us to collectively remember. Now, I've got to talk to the camera here for a second, so you guys just wait for a second. Some of you guys need to come back into this building. Not everybody at once, but we have room for you. Up to 50 spaces. It's not full, so come back, okay? Because to, together, collectively, we remember together when we, we're singing these songs. There's songs up here that we're singing. There's lines that we're singing in these songs that are reminding us that we're on this journey together. It's not a journey that we're just doing by ourselves, in our car, with our podcast, and our worship music, in COVID, you know, just giving us an excuse not to show up, right? It's together. Together. I need you guys here. Not because I'm the pastor here, because I need this community. Whether I get paid by it or not, whether I'm even the pastor here or not, I need this community to keep me on the journey, to encourage me on the journey, to encourage me to stay connected to my vulnerability. Because it's an advantage we have in grace. Why? Because it leads us to something. It leads us together to something. God, Paul is inviting us to unite ourselves to that vulnerability so that we can see like God sees. So that we can see the vulnerable. Paul invites us to be united to that vulnerability so that we can collectively love like God loves. So you can show up, so that we can show up like God shows up to a world that is feeling so vulnerable right now. And as the Mandalorian reminds us, new episode out, this is the way. This is the way. The way of grace. The advantage of grace. Instead of running from our vulnerability, instead of exhausting ourselves trying to build an empire of comfort for me, instead of creating new caste systems or or supporting the ones that exist based on wealth, etc. We can embrace our vulnerability and it leads us collectively to each other. It leads us collectively to the water. It leads us collectively to the heart of God and to the heart of each other. Grace gives us the advantage 
of embracing our vulnerability instead of running from it. Uh, Mark Charles is a dual citizen of the U.S. and the Navajo Nation. He is also running uh, for President of the United States. Um, I could talk about him here and, and endorse him here because you can't even write him in on our ballot here. But I would encourage you to listen to the man, uh, to, to follow him on Twitter and to hear the things that he is dialoguing about. Uh, he happens to also be an evangelical Christian, and he wrote a book uh, with Song uh, Chan Ra, uh, Sung Chan Ra, uh, and it's an incredible book called The Unsettling Truth. And both these men are evangelicals, both men are people of color, and what they unpack is liberating. It's absolutely liberating. They take us back to the ongoing dehumanizing legacy of the doctrine of discovery, a theological justification for European exploitation of foreign lands and people that originated in the set of 15th century papal bulls. But they take it all the way back to the empire, the same empire that Paul will lose his life under, the same empire that will disembody Paul from his community, from his own body. They take it back there to Constantine. And when our faith got wrapped up in the empire, the empire got wrapped up in our faith. And what these two men are presenting to us is a new way forward, a new way out. But it's actually an old narrative. It's a narrative that Paul talked about. And as we face this election, it is so essential for us to be listening to men and women like this. And they're essentially laying out, brace yourselves, how racism, sexism, and white supremacy are bipartisan issues in America. And that American exceptionalism drives them both. And it is so embedded in our psyche as Americans that we so often can't even see it. That's why we need people like this to speak in and turn the light on for us. It doesn't mean that you don't vote. It doesn't even mean that you can't work for political parties. We've had people in our church that have worked for political parties, and there may still be people who do. But it means that your ultimate narrative that you have hitched yourself to, that you have united yourself to, isn't a political party here in America. Because the kingdom of God is the narrative that we are called to hitch ourselves to. That's the ultimate narrative. And at the foundation of that narrative is this king. This king who uses his power for what purpose? For the advantage of the other. And this is our second point, that grace leads us to the advantage of the other. Verses 3 through 4, listen to, listen to this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interest but each of you to the interest of the others. 
Can you imagine a political system, a kingdom, a nation, where this was the foundation, foundational bedrock of what those people, what the land was all about? It's not so much the narrative and the dialogue and the worry and the fear that I hear in this country. And it's okay that it's in this country. What worries me is when it's coming out of the mouths of people who are followers of Jesus, who have united themselves to a different narrative than their 401ks. Because we have embraced a narrative in this country that money is the greatest thing. And I'm telling you, money is not the greatest thing. There is a different way. If you want to understand how our faith is connected to our work, this verse, Philippians 2, 3, and 4, read it every day when you go to work. When you think about your industry, read this verse as a framework for how your industry should be operating whether you're in finance, whether you're in medicine, whether you're in education, whatever you're in, that this is what work is all about. That you've been gifted to give it away, to serve the world. That's what your work is for. So in the face of the narrative of the empire, Paul is saying instead of being driven by selfish ambition. Be driven by graceful ambition. Be driven by generosity. Instead of starting from a narrative of scarcity that says I have to scratch and claw my way to the top. And once I get there, I must fight to stay here. We start with a narrative of abundance. We are united to the king of grace. The king of gift giving. We are united to the king of abundance. We are invited to live as he lives, which is generosity. Trusting in his provision. We named a church after it. It's called Providencia. Trusting in his provision. We are called to do this work in the world. But we're called to do it together. See, there's a communal element again to this way of life. As I am giving my life for the sake of other, there's somebody else in here who's giving their life for the sake of other, and because they're doing that, guess what? They're taking care of me. And we're taking care of each other. We can do that. And it already happens. Man, do I dream of it happening even more and more. Is it something that happens overnight? No, Eli, it doesn't. It doesn't happen overnight. He was moved by that. Um, bringing the tears. Um, there is a dependency that he draws us into. We love you, Eli. There's a dependency that he draws us into. And in verse 5 through 8, where Christ will move toward us, he moves towards our humanity. He joins us in it. 
And he invites us deeper into it. Not to run from it. Not to run from the vulnerability. To go deeper into our humanity. And look at what the empire does to him. Verse 8. It dehumanizes him on the cross. But listen what happens in the advantage of grace. It is through this very act of disembodying Jesus, of dehumanizing Jesus before the world, that it becomes the most healing picture of embodiment we've ever seen. That someone would give their life up for us. They would give their life on our behalf. That they would sacrifice Sacrifice their freedom. Sacrifice their health, their wealth. Not in some disconnected way, but that so that we could be connected again. So that we could be embodied again. You know, we have to learn as a church from people like Martin Luther King Jr. Who could dream. We need to learn from people like that. We need to learn from people like Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy, the film Just Mercy. I encourage you to see it. Who, in the face of so much suffering, can dream. And they can dream in a way that they know in their lifetime that what they dream about isn't going to be accomplished. But they're setting themselves and they're inviting a community of people to set themselves on a trajectory, a long-term trajectory of grace. The advantage of forever. In verses 9 through 11, there's this long-term vision versus a short-term vision. We know from the Gospels that after Christ's crucifixion, he will be dead and buried. And the empire thought it was over. But we also know that on the third day, there is resurrection. So the American narrative dies with its exceptionalism. But in the gospel narrative, that's where it begins. With humility. From grace. That's our job. That's our calling as a church, no matter what nation we are in. We are building a different kingdom on display for the world. This is a different way. This is the way of grace. Christ's vision is for a kingdom of abundance, a kingdom that will last forever. And in verse 9, it says that every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Everywhere, this is the king of forever. And those tongues will confess and those knees will bow, not because their arms are being twisted, but because he's the king of grace. He brings us the water. He invites us into this way of life that what we practice now what we live into now, we're going to live into for eternity. Let us pray.